0: You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Well, without further ado, let's get into the Word of God. Today we are in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 44. So we're going to be digging in, looking at what is happening and how it applies to us. Mark 12, 28 through 44. If you don't have a Bible, maybe you can share with someone next to you. I do have it on PowerPoint as well. I'll be teaching out of the New Living Translation. And if you didn't know or didn't see as you walked in, there's little tables that say Bibles. That's for you to use or to take if you don't have a Bible. Um, But let's go ahead and read Mark 12, 28 through 44, the entirety of it. And then we'll pray. It says one of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate he realized that jesus had uh, that jesus had answered well so he asked of all the commandments which is the most important jesus replied the most important commandment is this listen o israel the lord our god is the one and the only lord you must love the lord your god with all your heart your soul your mind and your strength The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The teacher of religious law replied, well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth by saying there's only one God and and no other. And I know it is important to, to love him with all of my heart and my understanding and my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. Realizing how much this man understood, Jesus said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Verse 35. Later, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, he asked, Why do the teachers of religious law claim that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Since David himself called the Messiah my Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? The large crowd listened to him with great delight. Jesus also taught, beware of these teachers of religious law, for they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces. And how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property, and they pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. And lastly, verse 41 Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple. And watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts. Then a poor widow came and dropped in only two small coins. Jesus called his disciples and said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it's living and it's active, that it's a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. And God, we wanna receive what you have for us this morning. We ask that you would teach us, that we would be learners, we would be your disciples to learn what it is that Jesus has to say to us this morning. And so God, we take it as your word. It has full authority over our lives. And God, we, wanna, we want your will to be done. And so Holy Spirit, would you author my thoughts and my words that it would be yours and not mine? Would you anoint our time this morning? We ask that you would just um, move, that we would change from the inside out, that we would be a people that truly do love you with everything that we are and love our neighbor as ourself out of that love. Would you do that, Lord? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, A bit of context for you, especially if you have not been with us or aren't aware what's been happening in uh, Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 12. Um, This debate that verse 28 talks about, right? This religious leader is standing there listening to the debate. This debate has been ongoing and it's been kind of fierce, And what's been happening is that Jesus is encountering the height of opposition before going to the cross. And these religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, is this group of people made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And these are the group that are confronting Jesus. And what they're doing is they're really calling him out and they're confronting him and they're trying to catch him in some kind of mistake. And the reason why they're doing that is because they are just not into Jesus. Well, most of them aren't. They're trying to discredit him. They're trying to get him arrested. They're ultimately trying to do worse. And we see that just in a few days. He'll go to the cross because partly because of this group of people. But they are in this debate over and over, verse after verse. We've looked the last few weeks. There's this debate, this fierce debate going on. And what we see here in our text today is not so much a continuation of that debate because it's gone pretty well, right? Jesus has has said the right things and even even the religious leader would say you've answered well to what's happening. But rather, instead of the debate going on, Jesus brings up some really important teachable moments. And he uses this time, this debate and all that's happening to sum up some really crucial points of Christianity, Um, and we'll see that what he leaves us with in our text this morning amongst his followers and his mockers and in front of the Sanhedrin, the lessons that he wants us to get across today are loving God, loving others, and what model generosity looks like, and so the breakdown of our text today is that we see Jesus teach on love In verses 28 through 40, uh, excuse me, 28 through 34, we see Jesus point out model generosity in verses 41 through 44, and then also we see contrasted to these actions, we see that the actions that we don't want to do, the teachers of the religious law, what they're doing in verses 35 through 40. So there's kind of three different things going on, but they're all intertwined. And what I want to do is I actually want to start with what not to do. Instead of getting to like what God says to do, let's just get the bad stuff out of the way for a second and let's look at the the attitudes and the lifestyle of these religious leaders because Jesus kind of confronts them and really spells out what we're not supposed to be like. And so verses 35 through 40, what not to do. The section here starts off by Jesus actually asking the question. He's not being asked a question. He's the one that starts the conversation, very different than what we've seen. And what he does is he brings up something that is well known, and that's King David. This is Israel's favored king. This is mighty warrior King David, the guy that had a heart after God, you know, like this prized king. And he brings that up because he's trying to prove his own deity as God, as the messiah. And he does this by by bringing up Israel's favorite ruler, King David. And what he's showing is that he was a descendant of David, as was prophesied about. Even in the book of Matthew, the first chapter, you see the genealogy of Jesus. If you look in that genealogy, who's Jesus related to? King David. What he's trying to do here is he's saying that That he was David's Lord as well. In a very historic way, Jesus tries to draw the crowds in to look at himself. And he was using a very specific part of Jewish history to do so. And so pointing to Israel's favored king was supposed to get their eyes and attention on himself, the king of kings. And so he's using Jewish history, he's using King David as a way to point them to himself. And if you remember, up to this point, Jesus has kind of flown under the radar. I mean, he has been making quite an uproar by healing people and casting out demons and raising people from the dead. But up until this point in Jerusalem, he's always telling people, it's not time yet. Don't tell people about me. But what we saw about a month ago when Jesus came in to Jerusalem on the donkey in the triumphal entry is this is the time where he's to be heralded as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And so he brings up Jewish history, King David, to try to prove this point. But he doesn't end there. What happens is, is that he confronts the hypocrisy of these religious leaders. So for, for about three years, he's been dealing with their confronti- confrontation. Excuse me. So Jesus' public ministry was about three years long. and So it's been three years. And if you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, anytime there's like a question about Jesus doing something on the Sabbath or eating with sinners or working or almost anything, anybody asking that, is the Sanhedrin, is the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he's kind of done with it. And Jesus, his, his final kind of thing he does is he calls out their hypocrisy in a very clear way. Specifically, he calls out their fake, inauthentic, disingenuous way they claim to follow God. And Jesus just abhorred it. He hated it. He it. it he contested it. And so what he does here, after proving himself to be the Messiah real quick by talking about King David, he goes into what not what we ought not look like. And so the first thing he says is the, the rulers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk into the marketplaces. What these guys would do is that they would you know, dress in their finest clothes. They'd like to be the ones that stood at the door making sure everyone saw what they were doing, and they just were waiting for compliments. They demanded a recognition from others, and they loved the image of being holy. And so Jesus is confronting this fake, like, showy attitude, Um, In their lives and he goes on to see they also love the seats of honor in the synagogues and they love to sit at the head of the table It's exactly what it sounds like. They loved getting all the attention They demanded the perks of their privilege and their status and so you can see where this is going Jesus is confronting this prideful arrogant hypocritical attitude and then he goes on to say they also even worse off they used to cheat widows out of their property. They used to pray long in public, they used to do all these things. And what was happening at that time is that they were using their status as religious holy men to actually exploit the weak, to go into widows' homes that were that were desperate and alone and they would actually exploit these women to get things from them, really evil. They used flattery and manipulation to get Things from the least in society, such as widows. And what they would also do is they would stand on the street corners and they would just recite these long prayers full of very technical vocabulary that no one really could understand, but they did all of this for show. They did all of this to look one way, but inwardly were far from the Lord. And so Jesus, once again, he's kind of putting it all together and he's saying And he's calling out their shallow, showy lifestyle. And if anything, it should be a warning and a sober reminder to us that this is not what our lives should look like. Our life, we shouldn't act this way. We shouldn't be arrogant and try to cheat people out of things. And that should be obvious for a second. But what Jesus is doing is he's using them in contrast to what we as believers should look like. So instead of having a showy, fake lifestyle where it looks like we're Christians. It looks like we know God. We we do the right things, right? We, We post the right Instagram verse on Monday morning. Or we go to church like two or three times a month. Or you know what? If there was like a volunteer opportunity, I'd probably do it, right? Instead of just having this showy outward form that To other people, we can just pretend like we know God. What Jesus is trying to get at is a deep, genuine, authentic, and real, heartfelt place. Jesus is trying to cut through, show, and and being disingenuous, and he's trying to say what really matters. And this is what he does, loving God and loving others, verses 28 through 34. What happens is, is that one of the teachers of the law hears this debate and thinks Jesus answered it really well. And so not in any weird way, not as a trap. He really just genuinely asked Jesus, what is the most important thing that I should do? This isn't trying to trap him. This is not trying to make him answer wrong. This guy really just wants to know, like there's a ton I could do. There's a lot of ways I could live my life. There's a lot of things I could do what should I do? What is most important? And I think it's actually a really, really good question to ask, right? In a very hectic world, busy, complicated life that we all live in, this can be a very relative question for us. What is the point of life? What's most important? Because if we don't ask that, well, you're weak. Your iCal will just be filled up, right? And then I'll see you next Sunday. How was it? Oh, just, it was busy. But what'd you do? Oh, well, you know, work and life and friends and Then the weeks go on and on. So what this guy is doing is he's saying, well, Jesus, okay, I heard all that you just said. You talked about a lot of different things, but what's the most important thing? And it's not as easy as it sounds because context-wise, this this Jew asking this, he would have known that in Jewish tradition, um, rabbinic tradition, they've identified there to be 613 commands from the Old Testament, So what he's asking is, which one of them is the most important? There's 613 things you're supposed to do. And out of those 613 commands from the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, 365 of them were negative, like don't do that, and 248 are positive. And some are, you know, light, like they're less demanding, and some are viewed as heavy that have just more severe repercussions and, you know, if you're disobedient to them. And so it's a very, uh, like, important, simple question, but there's a lot of weight to it because their lives were filled up with the law. They tried desperately, these religious leaders, to do the law to the T. Every one of these 613 things we had to do. And so this religious leader said, well, what's the most important one? What should we make sure that we do above all? And Jesus responds by quoting what Israel called the Shema in Hebrew. The Shema was found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. It says, listen, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. I'm going to say it in Hebrew right now. I learned this a long time ago. Just, I'm going to say it wrong, so just go with it. In Hebrew, what he would have said, what, what, you, what Jews would have said is, Shema, Yisrael, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad. Probably not like that, but close. Um, This is what Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 meant. This is what the Shema is. And the Shema is the best known of all Jewish liturgy. It's the confession that every devout Jew, even to this day, recites morning and night. They say, "The the, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema, Yisrael, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad. They say this morning and night. At Yom Kippur, it's the climactic moment of the prayer on the holiest day of the year. And traditionally, traditionally, these are the last words when someone dies. When you put your hands over their eyes, you would say the Shema. To Israel, the Shema is everything, the most important prayer that could be prayed. The Shema means the Lord, Yahweh, our God, Elohim, different words. The Lord, Yahweh, is one. That's what it means in its original language. And what's important to note is that this right here is the heart and soul of the Hebrew faith and, yes, of Christianity. This belief right here, it's because of what these words mean what Yahweh means and what Elohim means. They mean two different things. And saying them together is the most significant thing that you could say and you could believe. It's because Elohim, that middle word right there, is the general term for God, just creator God. But also, it was used just for any God, or even false gods. It was just a general idea of the God that created the universe. But Yahweh is God's covenant name declared to God's people in Scripture. And so to combine those two is to say this. To say Yahweh is Elohim is, is meaning that the God that created everything is actually our God in Scripture. This would have been absolutely unbelievable in a polytheistic society, one that believed in many gods. What Jews were saying here, what Jesus is saying here is what we say is that there are not many gods, there's one God and his name is Yahweh. It's Yahweh Elohim. It's the God that created everything and it's our God of the Bible. Do you see that? What this is meaning is that Yahweh is one. He's our God, and he's our only God. He is unified and unique in essence and existence. He alone is God, and there is no other. One commentator said this. He said, this is a powerful statement of uniqueness and exclusivity. Our God is God alone, and our worship, love, devotion, and allegiance must be exclusively to God, or he'll not accept it. Teachers and theologians could debate all they want, but Jesus begins by bringing them back to the fundamentals and the non-negotiables of the faith. We should love this God, Yahweh Elohim, because of who he is, he is our God. So this man asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And he starts with the Shema. He says, before I answer that, I need you to know who you're talking about, who God is. He is creator God and he's our God. There's only one God, it's him. But then he connects the Shema with the greatest commandment. So does Deuteronomy. Because of who God is, you should love Yahweh Elohim with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. What does that mean? It means exactly what it means. With everything that you are, we're to love God. With all our mental capacities and all our our, our physical abilities, We should treasure him the most. And so combining those, the Shema and the greatest commandment, what it means to love God in this way is it calls for a total response of love and devotion to God, a call to love God wholly and completely. And when we do that, when we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it's the God of our Bible, the creator God, When we do that, it's not just a list of actions or ways in which we serve him, right? Okay, I love God by doing all these things. That's not it. It comes from a deep place of delight and adoration and worship. See, that's what the Jews were trying to do. They were trying to love God by doing the right things, obeying the law, keeping all the commandments. And Jesus says, yes, that's good and right, but the most important thing you could do is to love God wholly and completely out of a place of delight and adoration and worship. And what that means is that we treasure God above all else. We treasure him above every other thing, and our love for God consumes our strength, mentally, physically, emotionally, the most. And again, sometimes it's hard to actually practically live that out, like what does that mean? But on a really deep core, on a what am I supposed to do in life type of question or what is my purpose in life or what is the most important thing that I can strive to do? It's to love the Lord our God with everything that we are. And it means that. It means to treasure him above everything else. And it's not merely a decision like, okay, well, yeah, I'm gonna love him. Yep, I walked out of church and I'm gonna love God with everything that I am. It's not merely that. But it comes from a deep, Genuine, authentic place, and the work starts, that starts when we're redeemed and regenerated and made new creations. It comes from the power of the Holy Spirit in us after we're saved, helping us to have this love. And Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, that's the first commandment. The second commandment is only attainable if the first is happening. The second commandment is loving your neighbor as yourself or loving others. In order to love others, we first must love God in this way. And we're, we're actually meant to and called to do this. And you want to know why? We were created to be with God. If you look back at the garden before sin... We were created as humanity, as creations, to be in relationship with God, Yahweh Elohim, in an unerupted. excuse me, perfect, sinless, loving union. That's what we're supposed to be in. We were designed to love him with all that we are. Sin obviously messed that up broke that relationship. And we are in the process of trying to restore that. Jesus has redeemed us. Now he's trying to restore us back to the place of perfect, loving union with our creator. It's a process of sanctification. It's a process. But also, we can't forget that also, that we were made as image bearers of God. Genesis 1, 27, also in the garden, God's design. If you ever wanna know what's God's intention for humanity, it's probably always a good idea to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. What's God's design? What should marriage be like? What should our life be like? What's the most important thing? Go back to the beginning. Go back to God's intended design. But Genesis 1.27 says, God created man and woman in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We were created as image bearers of God. And so, because God loves, we love. Because God extends mercy, we ought to extend mercy. Because God's a forgiving God, it should make us a forgiving people. We'll see in a minute, because God gives, we should also give. But as created beings, we're to bear the image of our Creator. Creator, excuse me, Imago Dei in Latin. Loving others like God would only truly comes, though, from us loving and knowing Him first. We can't just go, you know what, I'm just going to love as God loved without loving Him first. It doesn't work that way. They are equally as important, but the second doesn't happen without the first happening. Are you with me? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Don. Um, and then it doesn't stop there. Jesus ties in. He, 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 he brings up what model generosity should look like, verses 41 through 44. And what Jesus is doing here is he's just sitting, and he's watching people drop their tithe in the collection box. That's what's happening in the temple right here. Jesus is just watching. He's just observing, He's sitting with his, excuse me, He's sitting with his disciples. and he sees the generosity of a widow. and he contrasts it with the many wealthy that are there. And he comments on it, and he brings his disciples in, and he uses it as a teaching moment. And specifically, he brings up what it costs both of them. For the rich, wealthy people, they were giving out of a surplus. It was out of an extra. They had plenty to live on, and their surplus, a part of it, they were giving. But for this widow, being without... These two mites, these two small coins, were a large portion of what she had to her name. And so what Jesus is doing is he's bringing up, it's not about how much you give, but it's about where you're giving from. Does it or does it, does it not require sacrifice? Jesus is trying to dig deeper into the state of these two people's hearts, the widow and the wealthy, And her generous, giving, worshipful heart, he points out. Because two mites is really nothing. It's about 1% of a daily wage. But for her, that was a big deal. That was like almost all that she had. And so Jesus pointed it out that it wasn't about the quantity, but it was about the character of her heart. It was about the reason why she was giving, about the sacrifice it took for her to give. So Jesus used the way she gave as an example of giving for his disciples, and it should be for us. See, we aren't just supposed to be generous when it's only out of a surplus, only when we can. Oh, well, I can be nice to that person. I can give. I can help that person only if I have a surplus of time and money. What Jesus is saying here is it's It doesn't depend, it shouldn't depend on our circumstances, but remember, we should give because God gives. God's a generous God. Remember what God did? He gave his only son to die for humanity. He gave everything for us. That is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is the generosity of God, the Father, by giving his son for us. And because of that, right, because we are image bearers, we ought to give because God gives. That's why even when we think of the concept in churches, not just this church, of tithing, right, of of tithes and offerings, it's actually not really correct when we say we're going to give back to God. I understand what we're trying to say, but it's not like a scratch. God scratches our back and so we're going to scratch him back. That's not why we give. We give because we're just to be generous because God's generous. We're to do it out of cheerful, worshipful hearts because God's worthy of it and we want to worship him with our finances and it's not even ours anyway, it's his. And so we're not giving back to him, so to speak, as a way of like, okay, God, thank you. Here's a little bit back. Like, that's cool, okay. Like, that's not why we give. We give because we love God. It's out of worship and adoration and out of love. And Second Corinthians would say it, it shouldn't be out of obligation. But we should be cheerful givers. That's what. But it comes back to we're generous because God is generous. So to take away, to, to, to walk out this door, if you remember anything, remember this. One is the most important thing we can do is love God with all that we are. For many of us, that may be a struggle, that may be hard, that may be something that we aren't doing. What I would challenge you is to, this morning, during our second set of worship, we should ask the Lord to search our hearts, why that is, why is that hard? What's competing for our love? Or we might be able to ask the Lord, Lord, what are we treasuring above you? Why aren't we loving you with all that we are? What else is getting our attention in our love when only you should? That would be a great thing for us to come before the Lord and ask God, I want this. I want to do this. I want to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Show me, show me. Show me how to do that. Show me what's stopping me from do that. And secondly, we need to remember that the only way that we are gonna be a people that love our neighbor as ourself or give as God gives is that if we're with and know God first, we have to love him first. We have to be with him and know him and be transformed by him because to love people and to be generous is gonna be the fruit of our time with the Lord. It's gonna be the outcome. It's gonna be the symptoms of this love relationship. We're just gonna become like God. We're going to become like Jesus as image bearers. And so it isn't actually going to maybe take work or take thought because we're going to become more like Jesus. And so naturally, our life will be like God's. Does that make sense? When we're saved, right, the moment that you give your life to the Lord, positionally, you're saved. You're justified before God. But you also start this thing called the process of sanctification. It's a process of being redeemed and becoming more like Jesus. And so if you're saved before God positionally, you're good. But practically, you may, like me, need a lot of work. We're works in progress. And so when it comes to texts like this today, I'm sure all of us in this room have some work to do. We don't all love God perfectly and love others and give as we should. But that's the whole point of the gospel, too, is coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, I I need you. I can't do this on my own. I'm not supposed to help me do this. Transform me. Sanctify me. Make me more like you so that I can love others and give to others as you would. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are the one true living God that there is no other god that competes for your place in the universe or our hearts. We do declare that you are Yahweh Elohim, our God and the creator of the world. And thank you, Lord, that you sent your son to save us and redeem us that we might that the relationship might be restored and that we may be a people that now live for you, that are radically generous and love unconditionally in the way that you have done to us. Thank you, Lord, that that's really freeing, that it's not about us performing more, it's just us about, about us being with you more. Help us to be a people that put priority on our relationship with you, that we prioritize loving you above loving any other thing or person. So help us to do that, Lord, strengthen us. We wanna worship you now because you're good and you're worthy to be praised. Thank you, Lord, that you, that we have this opportunity, that you've given us breath in our lungs, you've given us the ability to praise you and worship you with, with music and with our voices because you're, you're worthy of it. And so God, have your way, be worshiped and magnified in this place. And at the same time, Lord, we wanna commune with you now. We ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you would reveal in our hearts what's getting in the way of us completely loving you in this way. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.